0: Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Right now our pastor is in a series in the book of Philippians as we talk about a variety of things as God's Word makes it known. If you're looking for a church, a place that you can connect with other believers, let me encourage you to reach out to us at Calvary. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com or you can call 479-442-4634. Now in today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is sharing a message from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 in a message entitled, Lives Worthy of the Gospel. Let's listen together
1: the book of Philippians chapter 1, page number 980 in the Pew Bibles, if you're reading out of one of those. Lord willing, we are going to uh, complete chapter 1 of Philippians this morning, and we'll move on to chapter 2 next Sunday. Now, we've been talking about what it means to have a singular passion for Christ and his cause, a singular devotion. This is the very heart of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. These are a group of people he deeply loved, and he is saying to them, reminding them, that his priority is to make Christ known wherever he goes, however God leads him, whether it is in prosperity or in adversity, that Christ would be exalted. Well, it just so happens that the Lord has led him to a Roman prison now for two years. Two years of being chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, But it just so happens it ended up being the imperial guard of uh, Rome, the emperor's own elite uh, guards, And so the gospel is now even reaching all the way up into the emperor's household because of his imprisonment. Now the gospel was Paul's joy. It's what he lived for, the gospel of Christ. And as he writes to this epistle to the Philippians, he is talking about that to them in his first chapter. Pastor Warren Wiersbe says this, the secret of Paul's joy is his single-mindedness. Remember we talked last week about the fact that we have too many irons in the fire in our lives today. We are far too distracted. We are far too busy. We are juggling too many balls at once. And because of that, uh, we often refer to Uh, our priorities in the plural. And I shared with you that though that word, uh, the word priority came into the English language uh, in the 1400s, it was 500 years before you ever read or hear about it mentioned in the plural. How can you have priorities? If everything is a priority, then nothing is a priority. And so for 500 years, the word was used accurately. We have a priority. Every person decides on what will be the priority in their lives. But when we begin to have priorities, everything begins to get watered down, even our devotion to Christ. If Jesus is one of your priorities, if he is anything besides first place, that he has no real place in our lives. Paul was single-minded. His priority was Christ and the gospel. And to just bear that out, by the way, in chapter one, you'll find him using the word Christ, the name Christ, 18 times in this one chapter. You'll find him mentioning the gospel six times in this chapter, He is emphasizing what was important in his life. And I believe that's why Paul gave the testimony in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or literally, for me to live Christ. That's how it reads from the Greek New Testament. But what is this single-mindedness? What does it look like? in a person's life. Well, it is the attitude that says, as Paul has, it makes no difference what happens to me just as long as Christ is glorified and just as long as the gospel is advanced in the world. Paul rejoiced in spite of his circumstances because he knew that God was in control. Of his circumstances. His circumstances strengthened the fellowship of the gospel. He gave us that in the first 11 verses of this chapter. His circumstances promoted the advancement, the furtherance of the gospel. That was verses 12 through 26. And his circumstances guarded the faith of the gospel. That's our text today, beginning in verse 27. Let's read it. but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Well, focus with me on the beginning of verse 27. I wanna make a few comments and then I'll give you a brief three-point outline of what I think Paul is emphasizing here. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul is saying and challenging the Philippians to do. And it is God's challenge and word for you and me today. If you're a child of God here today, I think most of you, maybe all of you are, then let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what does that mean? He's saying here, order your life and conduct. Order, prioritize your life and your conduct. Decide what's going to be first of greatest importance to you. And then decide where other things are going to fall in relationship to that priority. Order your life and conduct. It means to not just order that, but then to govern, then to live your lives so that your habits and your principles will align with the gospel of Christ, with the king and his kingdom. Now, understand what Paul is not saying. He is not saying that you and I can live lives that make us worthy of Christ's sacrifice. He's not saying make your life worthy of what Christ has done for you. Because none of us could ever do that. If we could make our lives worthy of Christ's sacrifice, then understand Christ's sacrifice would not have been needed. But it is because you and I are sinful people that we are hopelessly undone in our nature and in our behavior that we needed God to show grace to us. That's why he began this book with grace and peace be unto you. God's favor that was never deserved by you. But he's talking to them now as Christians. And he's saying, now that you are believers, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now that you know Christ as your Savior, now that you have him as your Savior, align your life with him in such a way that the way that you live will not discredit the gospel message that you proclaim. In other words, he's saying, as we would say it, practice what you preach. If you say you're a Christian, live like a Christian. Live a life that is worthy of that, not worthiness that brought it to you, but worthiness that moves your life always towards it, that shows to others that you really mean what you say when you profess that you are a Christian. Now, we've talked about this a little bit so far, but let me go back and and reflect on a few things, take it a little bit further, because today's uh, application of this message and what he says to them uh, is connected uh, to a context here. Philippi was a Roman colony. It wasn't just a city in the Roman Empire. It was a Roman colony. You might say it was a little Rome. It was a little Rome. Roman colonies were showcases of Roman culture. There were only a limited number of Roman colonies throughout all of the Roman Empire. It was also a military city. It was filled with Roman uh, soldiers, also of retired Roman soldiers. This place was a place where everybody wanted to live. Property values in Philippi were just out of proportion, kind of like living in northwest Arkansas. Can I get an amen to that? All right. It was a Roman colony. It reflected Rome in every way. If you could never have the opportunity of visiting Rome, you would want to at least spend some time in one of these Roman colonies, because again, it would reflect Rome in every way possible except for size. Now, upon being designated as a colony of Rome, one of the benefits that the citizens were given was the highly coveted Roman citizenship. Everybody wanted to be a citizen of Rome. Not that many people got to enjoy it. It brought certain privileges. Do you remember when we read last week, or maybe it was the week before, uh, as Paul is recounting his Uh, adversity for the cause of Christ from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He talks about all the things he went through, all the beatings and shipwrecks and being stoned and all of that. And he mentioned, uh, what was it, three times being whipped uh, with 40 lashes save one. That means he was whipped 39 times in each of those times of lashings. Why 39? because he was a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, a Roman citizen could not be whipped 40 times. In contrast to that, we don't know how many times Jesus had to face the lash. We don't know how many times other than it left his back, the flesh, and the muscles hanging like bloody ribbons. He was not a Roman citizen. He did not have the privilege of only being lashed 39 times, but Paul did. Roman citizenship was hard to attain. I mean, if you were born into it because of who your mother and father were, that was one thing. If you wanted to earn it or attain it, very few people were successful. You had to uh, do some a great act of valor or sacrifice. Some Roman soldiers uh, were given Roman citizenship because of their heroic deeds on the battlefield. Others were able to purchase their Roman citizenship, but it was so far out of the price range of average people that most people could never hope uh, for that to happen. Now, this citizenship fostered a great sense of pride and loyalty to the empire and to its emperor. Again, they represented Rome. Every year, they worshiped by pledging their allegiance and saying, Caesar is Lord. And so these people of Philippi, uh, the vast majority of them were citizens because they lived in a Roman colony. Now, the religious life of Philippi was a witch's brew of paganism. They had all kinds of gods. There was emperor worship that I just mentioned going on. There were the Greek deities uh, that they worshiped and had temples to. They had Asian deities, those that were unique to the region. They even had local deities that were unique to Philippi alone. And they had all of these deities that they worshiped. They were not so different uh, from Ephesus. If you'll remember when Paul came to Ephesus and he walked the streets of Ephesus, there were monuments and there were uh, statues and temples to all of these deities Uh, that uh, the people sought to worship. Well, Philippi had all of that going on. And yet there was very little influence of the Word of God. You remember when Paul got there 10 years before this letter is being written, when he came to Philippi on uh, the Sabbath, there was no synagogue to go to. Why was that? Because for a city to have a synagogue there had to be at least 10 Jewish men. Wherever there were 10 Jewish men, they would have permission to build a synagogue for their reading of the Scriptures and to worship. But Paul and his entourage could find no synagogue to go to. Why? There were not even as many as 10 Jewish men in this city. So the Old Testament scriptures had not made any kind of inroads. The only influence was on a handful of women who had to meet for prayer down by the river. You find that one man, one commentator, Dennis Johnson says this about Philippi. Philippi was a mission field rife with religious weeds and undergrowth. Its spirituality, or its spiritually barren soil, not even pierced by the plow of Israel's ancient scriptures. There was no influence of the Word of God until the gospel came to town. And we find that Lydia gets saved, we find that a Philippian jailer gets saved. We find that a demon-possessed teenage girl gets saved. And from that odd beginning, a church was planted that grew into a church that was faithful to the gospel, that supported Paul's ministry. Uh, That was probably Paul's favorite church. If you and I understood Greek better and we could read his letters in the New Testament, the epistles, you would find that the whole tone of this letter to the Philippians was different than every other letter that he wrote. It was a friendly tone. He was writing as though he was writing to his best friends and to family. Now, one other important observation, and we'll get to that outline, okay? I know some of you really like to write down points, and uh, that's good. It'll help you understand the passage. When Paul says... Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There is a bit of a loss in translation because Paul uses a word that most English language translations tend to kind of overlook. They give us the... The rough idea, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, we get that idea. That's very clear. But he uses a word here that means to be a citizen. He is calling out to them as citizens of Philippi. Only he's writing to them as citizens of a different kingdom. And by referring to them as citizens, he's using a somewhat political term. He's using a uh, a term that these people would understand. But if he used the same term writing to Corinth, it would make no sense because it was not a Roman colony. Now remember, many of these citizens were soldiers or former soldiers. And if the government of the city of Philippi wrote to them or appealed to them, they would be appealed to as citizen-soldiers. Citizen-soldiers. They would spring to attention. For they were not just citizen-soldiers of Philippi. They were citizen-soldiers of a colony that represented Rome. And they were so proud of that. And so when Paul begins to write to these believers uh, at Philippi, he calls out to them as citizen soldiers. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You citizen soldiers of Philippi, no. Of Rome, no. You citizen soldiers, of heaven, let your manner of life, order your manner of life, live in such a way that your life accurately reflects heaven, your ultimate home, the kingdom to which you belong. Let it reflect the gospel of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, he takes that even further over in chapter 3, if you remember There is a verse there that will probably sound familiar to you. It's verse 20, and then the following, verse 21. Paul says to these these Philippian believers, but our citizenship is in heaven. He makes it very clear. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, from above, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's only one Caesar, but understand, even Caesar bows to and answers to the Lord of heaven. So he's calling them citizens, soldiers of the kingdom of heaven, this is what you need to do, okay? So what does he say? And he says three things. I'll mention them very quickly, or I promise I will, all right? First of all, he says to them, stand firm in unity. Stand firm in unity. Verse 27a, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent because of my execution, he didn't know what was going to happen to him, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. He said, this is what you must do. You must be found standing firm. That means to be constant, to persevere, to hold your ground. I don't want to put words in the apostle's mouth and by doing so put words in God's mouth. But I believe if there's one message that Paul would write to the church in America today, that Paul would write Calvary Baptist Church today, it would be, citizen soldiers, stand firm. Hold your ground in one spirit, in one mind, with one mind. We are living in a time where very few who claim the name of Christ are holding their ground the church is slipping into apostasy day by day in our country. Many of our, what we thought, were brothers and sisters in Christ, and only God knows who truly are the ones that belong to him and those who are not. We are living in a time when many, some of them our own families, are deconstructing their faith. What they once believed and said they believed are vastly different. And so as a result of that, they are not living lives that are worthy of the gospel they claim to believe. They are living lives that are so uh, inferior in their beliefs. They are THE GROUND IS GIVING WAY UNDER THEIR FEET. THE CHURCH IS IN GREAT DECLINE. THE MESSAGE OF CHRIST SEEMS MORE OUTRAGEOUS, SEEMS MORE UNREASONABLE TO PEOPLE ALL THE TIME. AND YOU KNOW WHY? BECAUSE HERE IS THE MESSAGE OF CHRIST. FROM THE TIME OF CHRIST, FROM THE TIME OF THE OLD TESTAMENT, TILL TODAY, IT IS UNCHANGED. But our culture is doing this. Day by day, it's getting further away from God's standard. And the further from God's standard you move, as you look to what God says, it looks more unreasonable, more outrageous, more ridiculous every single day. The virgin birth of Jesus, do you mean to tell me you believe in that? that good people, many good people, are going to spend an eternity in hell. Do you really believe that? Absolutely, those are truths of God's Word. Those who will spend an eternity in heaven has nothing to do with a gospel that fits your prejudices. It is the gospel once delivered unto the saints. It is the gospel given to us by God himself. And anything man-made about it moves us away from the Lord. We are in great decline. And he says, if you're going to live a life worthy of the gospel, if you're going to practice what you preach, you've got to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. He mentions a few words later side by side. Again, the Roman soldiers would understand this language because Rome was known, its legions were known for their ability to stand their ground. They would stand side by side with that shield that later on is referred to by Paul in applying it to a spiritual A warfare, a shield of faith, having that short sword, that sword of the Spirit for Christians, and having your feet shod with the gospel of peace. What would the Roman soldiers wear? It was a half boot, a half sandal. It was so much more substantial than anything their enemies ever had. To wear. It was a hobnail boot, and it has been said by military historians that the reason Rome was so powerful on the field, the reason that they were hardly ever defeated was not just their training, was not just their weaponry, was not just their armor, but even more specifically, it was because of the shoes they wore. They could stand firm when most of the time the enemies they were battling were barefooted heathens. And by standing firm, they vanquished the enemy. And he's saying, you as Christians, guess what? You've got to do the same thing. Stand firm. Hold your ground. Don't be easily swayed. Don't be easily... um, knocked off of your feet. Don't let the winds of adversity control uh, where you go and how you stand. Just this week, I came across a verse. I don't remember ever reading this before. I'm convinced. I try to read through the Bible every year. I'm convinced that God sticks in verses every year that weren't there the year before because I don't remember them. I'm thinking, where did that come from? Now, granted, my memory is suffering a bit these days, and it could be me. But I came across this brief statement in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9. The Lord says, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith, you won't be firm in anything. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's something for another time. It helps us transition to point number two. Stand firm, stand firm for the gospel. Secondly, striving for the faith of the gospel. He said in 27 verse A that we should stand firm in a manner worthy of the gospel, that we should stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, side by side. And now he says in the rest of verse 27 and 28, these words. I may hear of you that you are standing in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So standing firm in unity, okay, one heart, one mind, side by side. While we stand firm, we strive for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm is a defensive posture. Striving for is an offensive posture. Do you see that? There is a time to stand firm and not give up any ground. There's never a time to back up. But there are times to move forward, to strive ahead. We do this for the faith of the gospel. What is the faith of the gospel? Don't let the word gospel throw you off into simplicity because most of the time when we say as a definition for the gospel, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and we leave it at that. But I'm going to tell you something, folks: the gospel is everything from Genesis one one to Revelation twenty two twenty one. The faith, as that term is used throughout the New Testament, particularly, is referring to the whole body of truth, of the redemption story beginning with creation and the fall and the flood and the failure of Israel and the message of the prophets and finally the fulfillment of all of it in Jesus Christ and the future restoration of all things. We are moving to perfection and completion, not demise and disarray. Understand that the faith is this whole story. Understand that to strive for the faith is to strive for doctrine, for the truth of God's Word. I realize that doctrine is a curse word in most churches today. You know why that is? It's because of this decline that's taking place. God's truth has to be strived for. That sounds kind of clumsy. I looked that up, by the way. I looked up the past tense. It must be strove for, but that sounds even weirder, doesn't it? It seems like it ought to be, it, it's worth striven for. But I think that's a made-up word by me. We have to strive for it. The truth of God's Word, this book, as my grandpa used to say, from kiver to kiver. That's from cover to cover. It's God's Word. We can't compromise any of it. It is constantly under attack. Every generation has to stand firm and strive for the truth of the gospel of Christ. You have to test it. You have to try it. You have to make it your own. I'm not saying discover your own truth. I'm saying you have to make it your own by conforming your life to its. We are told in the book of Jude, that little one chapter book written by this half brother of Jesus. Jude tells us to contend for the faith, the same faith, that was once delivered to the saints. We don't have to be contentious for the faith, but we are to contend for the faith. Now, notice what he says about this. Don't be frightened by your opponents. And yet, guess what? Most of us are offended and we are fearful of We are intimidated by the opponents of the gospel all the time. In fact, if you're not careful, you'll spend more of your time and effort trying to please the opponents of the gospel than pleasing the one who gave you the gospel. And that, my friend, is sin. Don't be afraid of them. Why? Because he said, fear is a clear sign of their destruction. They are the ones who are afraid of God. Yes, they shake their fist in his face, but they fear him. They're afraid of him. They're afraid of his truth. And having no fear is an assurance of your salvation. Why do we know that? Because Paul tells Timothy in Second Timothy, Chapter 1, for this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Listen to these words. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. All right. So to be worthy of the gospel, to live lives worthy, to practice what we preach, we have to be willing to stand firm in unity. We've got to work at that. We've got to work at striving for the faith. Then look at verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have now we've already talked about this or at least mentioned this verse a couple of times in recent weeks but we need to catch it in its context here all right standing firm in unity as believers in unity Not in disunity. Whatever causes disunity is sin. But standing in unity, striving for the gospel, the faith once delivered to the saints, standing firm and striving for, understand inevitably you are going to suffer for this. You're going to suffer. And that's point number three, suffering for Christ standing firm in unity, striving for the gospel, suffering for Christ. You're not going to get off scot-free. Everything is not going to be pleasant in life. Paul is saying, look what it's cost me. And he's saying to them in verse 30, you are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. What conflict did he have when he came to Rome? He was taken before the city uh, council. He was condemned, he was beaten, he was imprisoned. Understand, you're engaged in that same conflict. You're still there 10 years later. And you hear that I still have, guess what? I'm still in jail. Man, when you first met me, I was in jail. Here I am 10 years later, I'm in another jail. And between these last two years and that time 10 years ago, I was two years in a different jail. That's where I spend most of my time. Why? For my wrongdoing? No. For the gospel's sake. Because being faithful, standing firm for the gospel, and advancing the cause of Christ is going to bring persecution against you. But what does he say about that? He says, for it has been granted, granted. I mean, you grant somebody something as a gift, right? Not it has been paid to you, not it is indebted to you, but it is granted you, it is a gift. The word here is a form of the word grace. Now, there are other words in the Greek language that Paul could have used to emphasize the idea of something given to him. There's one word that's used some 400 times in the New Testament. But that's not the right word. This is a gift of grace. This is a result of charis the grace of God. And it's used barely 20 times in the New Testament in this way. For it is a grace gift to you, Paul, and to you, Philippians, that God has granted you for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ, not only to believe, but also To suffer. What is he saying? That if it were not for God's grace, you would never have believed in Jesus. Do you understand what that means to you and to me today? To every believer throughout time, beginning in the Garden of Eden, going down to the last breath of the last man, woman, boy, or girl on this earth. Do you know what that means? that those who believe in Jesus Christ, that those who experience God's salvation, that those who express faith in the Lord, it is not something that begins in them. It is not their own uh, good sense. It is not their own personal wisdom. It is not something that begins in their hearts or their minds. It is a grace given from God. God has to give you the grace gift of faith or you would never have faith, have faith to express in him. Now, I don't know if that troubles you or not. Some say when you believe that, then you must be filled with so much pride that God would choose to give that to you. Nothing is more ridiculous than that idea. Why would it be pride? It would only be pride, and it could only be pride rightfully if I deserved for him to give me that gift. But I don't deserve it. And the fact that God has given me the gift of faith and belief instead of pride, it drives me to my face in absolute and utter humility and thankfulness. That's the only right response. Does God give that to everybody? I'll let you answer that however you decide you want to answer that. But I want to tell you it's only through God's gift of grace that any one of you ever got saved. If it is anything else, then you're depending on something you have done. That's self-righteousness. That is not true conversion. But it is God's gift not only to believe in him. It is God's gift that I can suffer for his sake. What a privilege, what a way to identify with Jesus, to suffer for the sake of his truth, his gospel. What a blessing it is. And let me say this to you without getting too technical here or straying off in the weeds too far, though it's not really the weeds, it's the truth here. We're not just suffering for Christ. We are suffering with Christ. And we are suffering in Christ. If you go back to a previous verse in this chapter, I forget what verse it is. I'd have to look back and find it. And we don't have time for that. But Paul refers to suffering for Christ. In the original language, it says to suffer in Christ. I believe it's verse 13. It says that we suffer in Christ. He says my imprisonment is not just for Christ. My imprisonment is in Christ. What does that mean? It means every time we suffer for advancing the cause of Christ, for obedience to the gospel of Christ, we are suffering with Christ and in Christ. Our suffering is an extension of his suffering. Do you remember when Paul was Saul and he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church? Do you remember that in Acts chapter 9? And he was struck down by blindness with that light from heaven and he hears a voice out of heaven. And what does that voice say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church, right? Why are you persecuting me? Why do you persecute me? When you were there approving of the stoning of Stephen, you were persecuting me. When you carry believers off to jail and have them beaten or have them stoned or have them executed, you're persecuting me. You're on your way to Damascus to persecute me. Why? Because every person who suffers for the cause of Christ is living out an extension. Christ is suffering also in you. And through you. I want to tell you that elevates our suffering to a place of great blessing. No wonder Paul calls it a grace. A grace. A grace gift from God. Now, man. I need to spend an hour here, but I'm going to make this statement in about two sentences. Not everything you suffer. Not everything you experience negatively is for Christ or in Christ. So don't try to make it that. Oftentimes our suffering is a result of our own ignorance. Will you say amen to that? Sometimes our suffering is a result of our own bad decisions. Will you say amen to that? Sometimes our suffering is because we have worldly values, not heavenly values. Will you say amen to that? Not every bit of suffering is for the sake of Christ and is not an extension of Christ's suffering. Sometimes it's just our plain stupidity. I'm going to tell you, I've done a lot of that kind of suffering. (laughs) But I'm thankful for one thing in regards to that that's very important. And keep this in mind lest you get to feeling a bit guilty about that and start to beat yourself up. God took all of your stupidity, all of your ignorance, all of that into account when he wrote the story of your life, and God can and God will even take your bad decisions, your dumb choices, your earthly worldly values, and somehow he will even weave those things into the story of your life so that all things work together for your good and for his glory. So what is the bottom line here? What is Paul calling these believers to do? He is appealing to them as Christ's followers, as citizen soldiers of heaven, saying that remember how you live doesn't just reflect Northwest Arkansas, doesn't just reflect your family, doesn't just reflect your southern roots, But how you live reflects your heavenly home, the kingdom you belong to. And he's saying to you, your focus must be on serving as citizen soldiers in courageous unity so as to bring credit to the distant and majestic capital that defines your privileged status. Not Rome, not to the west, but heaven on high. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this challenge. It is so high that in our flesh we cannot attain to it. But, Father, we're not supposed to attain to it in our flesh. It's only in the Spirit. So help us to live in the Spirit. To live lives worthy of the gospel, to advance your kingdom, and to exalt your son, Jesus, we pray in his name, amen.
0: Our hearts desires that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.